0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Lisa Leong. Given the changes to our work landscape as a result of the pandemic, I'm wondering what you've been thinking about in terms of your own career. And if you're part of a working couple, what type of conversations might you be having right now about your careers and how they might work in relation to each other? So here's a show from earlier this year, full of wise advice, which can hopefully help you steer those conversations. There are big conversations you
2: have and then there are small conversations you have some of the smaller conversations are pretty hilarious actually for example I think it was some kind of kindergarten event and you discuss I've got a meeting oh no I've got a meeting too well what kind of meeting's yours it's with the CEO mine's with the CEO too is it decision or information ah okay well you know so it's just quite hilarious really there's a lot of um a lot of love and respect in our career decisions but a lot of humor <laughs> as well my name is Kate Erickson. I've had a career the last seven years with Coopers, building digital ventures and innovation, and prior to that in California, founding an innovation center. My husband is Hawken Erickson and he's Telstra's Chief Technology Officer, and before that, Chief Executive of Erickson. There were a couple of difficult conversations I guess we've had to have around careers. So Hawken came home, he'd been in Texas, and a couple of hours went by, we went to bed, turned the light off, and he said, oh, I bumped into the CEO today. And anyway, they'd offered him a job in Australia, and he had like 24 hours to give the answer. And I remember sitting up and turning on the bedroom light again and going, okay, well, (laughs) let's talk about this. And while I was doing that, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, you've been carrying this news for about five hours. You know, we've bathed the baby, put the rubbish out and now he just says, as we're going to sleep. Oh, I had a chat with the CEO today, they offered me Australia. So um, that was interesting because I wanted to stay in California and Hawken wanted to take the role but of course it's my home country, he's a Swede. So, um, you know, those sorts of things need a bit of um, bit of discussion and you've got to think about the way you both think. Hawken is very analytical and uh, I am very similar but I have a lot of dreams so uh, we've got to kind of come back and
1: meet each other I guess at that intersection of what's most important. And with me listening in from Paris is Jennifer Patriglieri. Jennifer is a Professor of Organisational Behaviour at INSEAD Business School, and she's researched how dual-career couples not just survive, but thrive in their love and work. Jennifer, welcome to This Working Life. It's good to be with you. Why did you decide to research this area? Where does the current advice
3: fail, do you think? The current advice fails because there is not a lot of current advice at all. In fact, if you look at the career advice, it's very much tailored towards people who have no strings attached and are flying solo so if you pick up any good career book there's lots of wonderful advice but there's no recognition that you might have other people in your lives and that they may affect that and likewise if we look at relationship advice it's very much focused to sort of who takes out the rubbish and who does the dishes well that's not really the issues most people are wrestling with as we just heard in those clips it's really around these intersections between our careers and relationships and how do we we make those decisions and how do we set up a life where we can both get most of what we want.
1: Jennifer, in one of your early negotiations with your husband, you actually wrote out a kind of contract. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Yeah.
3: So it wasn't signed in blood or anything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe with some wine.
3: Definitely red wine. Yes. We got together. Well, I was late twenties, he was in his thirties, but like many people at that stage in life, we'd had a string of failed relationships each. And um, we wanted to do it better and so we were very conscious um, in our coupling right from the beginning and really took the time to sat down. I think on our third or fourth date, I went to, he's from Sicily, I went to Sicily, it was just New Year's Eve and we sat down on the rocks on a nice harbour. It was very romantic and just took some time to really think about this will be a worthwhile relationship for me if... You know, what do we really want out of life? Now, this is not the Excel spreadsheet planning <laughs> phase, right? We're going to have a child after two years. And uh, it was really, you know, what do we want out of life and how are we going to make sure each other gets it? And we still have the piece of paper, actually. Really? That we, we We sketched this out on, you know, we didn't sign it. We didn't <laughs> stick it up anywhere. And this was a conversation that we, even now, we, we still come back to. And of course, the things we want have changed. You know, we're 17 years older, you know, th- mm. th- things evolve. But what it really did was build the habit of having those conversations into our relationship. And this is what I found time and time again in my research. The couples that really thrive have the habit of having, the, having those conversations And in the book, I describe an exercise called couple contracting, which is just a way for couples who are not used to having those conversations to think through what are the areas we we need to talk about. One is boundaries. What are the lines we're not going to cross? Now, this is a little bit strange because Mm. we often think more choice is better. But actually, the research shows the opposite. The more choices we have, the harder it is to make choices and the more we regret our choices. And um, what we find is when couples do this is it takes a lot of uncertainty out of the relationship. And of course, uncertainty is the thing that over time is the stress that kind of gnaws away our soul. And so if you can do this, it's really helpful.
1: So you went and interviewed 113 couples and you found that there were three distinct stages
3: that you called transitions. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, so what I found was that it's a struggle for dual career couples, but not all the time. There are three real crunch points, these three transitions. And the first one I like to think of as the time we really become a couple. So it's the time as a couple we face our first tough choice, whether that's like we heard, do we stay in California or move back to Australia? It might be the arrival of a baby. For those of us who get together later in lives, it might be, do we blend families from previous relationships? And this is the first time couples really need to work out, okay, how are we going to structure our lives in a way that we can both have the careers we want and have a decent relationship? And it's the first time conflicts come up in careers and these real hard choices come up. And that's really linked to the stage of our relationship. So Mm -hmm. it tends to come in the first four or five years of our relationship for most couples, sometimes earlier, sometimes a bit later. I mean, the transition one for my husband and I was when our two children arrived, and they arrived very close together, so 16 months apart. And it was also a time when both of us were undergoing major career transitions. So we were kind of powering everything together, two children. My husband was a psychiatrist and transferred to academia, and I was in business and started my PhD. And um, we were hanging on by the skin of our teeth, as the parents of many young children will, will tell you. You know, it was all just too much. And they came to a point where I really, very strongly considered quitting my career. And it was tough and I spoke to lots of people and people were saying, you know, just take a bit of time out. But I knew for my career, if I did at that time, the door to academia, which was my dream, would shut. So it was a very difficult time. And of course, like most people in this transition, initially we thought we were negotiating logistics, right? How do we deal with childcare? How do we deal with the house? How do we keep everything running? But that's never really what we're negotiating at this point. Of course, we're negotiating power. We're negotiating whose career takes priority. We're negotiating how do we support each other. And it took us, and it takes most couples in transition one, a little while to get to those deeper questions. We tend to focus on who's buying the milk. Mm -hmm. But the issue is never about the milk. It would have been in 2009 that he finished his anaesthetics training and the following year that I finished my specialty training and it was then that he decided to go ahead and do another fellowship and i think that's when we started to have a difference of opinion because i, I thought that the end point was getting our training and then finding nice secure jobs and settling more into a, a slower paced life and i had thought that he was on that same page but It eventuated that while I wanted to slow down a bit from a career perspective, he did not. And I think that's when where we wanted to go became evident to both of us. And ultimately our marriage didn't survive that difference.
0: My study isn't just about me, it's in fact about Laura and the family and Laura's study isn't just about Laura, it's about me and the family and having a shared goal and a mutual respect for each other enables one to support the other more easily than if there's a competitive tension.
2: I think Scott's absolutely right because our values were always our relationship first, our kids second. I think a lot of people would find that difficult but that's how we've done it.
1: Jennifer, what do you think about the
3: stories of these two couples? I mean, in some ways, they tell the same story, which is we've got to fix the principles of our relationship first. And unfortunately, you know, one in the first couple, they didn't. They came to find that out through the transition. And with the second couple, they had that set from the beginning. Now, what do I mean by principles? You know, the second couple described it as values, values, People describe it in different ways. Sometimes it's ambitions, goals, objectives, what matters most, our values. And what really matters is we understand this about the other person. What is it we're striving for and how can we can support each other? Because time and time again, when I talk to the couples, like the first couple who didn't work out, it wasn't per se that they weren't supporting each other. It was that they hadn't really fully understood what it was the other person wanted and therefore what it was they needed to support. So having those conversations early on is absolutely critical for couples to really just take a step back and think, what it, What is it that really matters to us at la, in life and how can we support each other in that? And of course, keep that an ongoing conversation because that does change over time. It's not that what we want in our early 30s is the same as in our early 50s. In, in fact, that will be quite strange. Those things change over time. But it's really about putting those conversations first and then layering on, you know, the weekends away and how we're going to manage the children and that sort of thing. That should all be based in the logic of our principles.
1: And you often focus on not just having the conversations, but how to talk. And you say it's very important. So how should we talk with each other?
3: There are some real classic rules to communication. The first, and it sounds obvious, but it's not in today's world, is undivided attention. So often we're trying to snap these conversations while we're looking at the phone and we're feeding the kids dinner and, and, and. It's not going to work. We've got to have that undivided attention. Now, how do we get that? It doesn't have to be the kind of long romantic walk on the beach at sunset. I was talking to um, a couple last week and they said, you know, they're in that busy stage with, um, you know, early teenage children and they're the taxi service going to activities. And they said, we've started to have dates in the car. So you know, we'll drive our kids to an activity. And that's our time without the phone when we have these conversations. So I think it's important to think, you know, this isn't a Herculean effort. It's about snatching that time of undivided attention. And then in terms of how we talk, there are obviously some some real things to avoid. Defensiveness is a very clear one. Now, that sounds obvious, but it's really hard when we are in that busy stage, especially when we have kids, if our career is really busy, we feel defensive because we're always a little bit anxious. Now, how do we get over those traps? There's a very simple way. And the answer is kindness. Now, we need to take a step back and think, what do we mean by kindness? Because we often think of kindness of doing kind things for people, you know, buying a little gift, letting them sleep in and giving them a little back massage, whatever that is. Now, they're wonderful. But the kindness that really, really counts is a slightly different kind of kindness, which is, do I think kindly of my partner? You know, when my partner forgets that takeout or whatever it is, which we all do. What is my association? Is it that they're lazy and they don't care? Or is it actually this is someone with very good intentions who loves me a lot and you know they're probably stressed out, they've probably had a, a bad day at work. What we find consistently over time is this kind of kindness is the absolute key to communications in couples. If we can maintain this association to our partner, those conversations are likely to go well. Now, of course, there'll be those funny, stressful moments like we've both got the meeting with the CEO and we didn't realise, but we can weather those storms much easier if we build this associational kindness into our relationships.
1: With me is Professor of Organisational Behaviour, Jennifer Patriglieri, and she's written a book based on her research into dual career couples. It's called Couples That Work. Can you take us through the um, models of career prioritisation? Because I feel like this is an important one to cover in the early stages of uh, relationship and career.
3: Yeah, and I would also encourage any of your listeners who are later on in their couples to still reconsider this because we often get it wrong at the beginning and it's never too late <laughs> to renegotiate. So there's three basic models of career prioritisation. And when I say career prioritisation, I mean whose career has that bit more emphasis? You know, they maybe they're the geographic leader, they put a bit more time and energy into work, and the other person puts a bit more time and energy into, into home. The first, the classic model, if you like, is primary-secondary. So one person has the primary career, they tend to be the geographic leader, etc. and the other person has the secondary career. Still a full career, but they dedicate that bit more time to home. Now, of course, traditionally, if we think to our parents' and grandparents' generation, it was usually the man in the primary position. That's no longer the case, but that's still the classic model, sort of one bit more Prior to the other. Yeah. The second model is turn taking, which essentially means that at any point in time, you look primary, secondary, but periodically you swap those roles. That sounds like it's hard to do. It is hard to figure out the timing, but at the same time, it adds this level of equality into a relationship. We both get a shot at pushing forward our career. And we also both get a shot of investing at home and increasingly, particularly when we look at the younger generations, sort of under 45, I'm being very generous with the term young there. <laughs> um, we see that both men and women are equally ambitious at work and also equally ambitious to invest at home. So this model enables that flexibility where we take it in turns to push forward and step back a little. And then the third model and really the newer model out there is we have some constraints. So, for example, we're never going to leave Melbourne, but within that, we're both going to push forward our career. So we take away some of those difficult decisions that lead to career prioritisation like geographic moves. Now, when I initially went into my research, I was thinking you know, which one of these is Mm. best. And, And what I found was actually all of them can work and all of them cannot work. The big difference is, did the couple very explicitly negotiate and agree which model they have? And that was the secret sauce. Now what tended to happen with the last model, the double primary model, because it's quite difficult to sustain, it forces couples to have those conversations, whereas the other two models are quite easy to slip into and then difficult to get out of.
1: I would but imagine, I that, how many how many couples actually have this conversation? It
3: seems quite a difficult one. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think many couples eventually get to it, but the question is how many couples have it beforehand? And the answer is not many. Most couples get to it when they sort of reach a crisis point in the first transition or a bit later on in their careers when they have that sense of regret that they didn't quite get it right through the first transition Um, and this is why it's very important to get to you now it it can be a difficult conversation and at the same time it can be a very freeing conversation right to get these things explicit and to really figure out what is it that's going to work for us now with a mind to now may not be the same as in five, ten years time, because none of, the, you know, it would be strange if an agreement that worked again in your early 30s is the same as in your early 40s or early 50s. It's not about thinking these things are set in stone, but it's about being very explicit. What works for us now and when might we need to revisit that? To the second transition. The second transition is linked to career stage. So for almost all of us, the first couple of decades of our career are very much about growth and striving. We're trying to establish ourselves on our career track. We're building, 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 building our career, building our relationship. Obviously, some of us are building a family as well, not all of us. And then at mid-career point, most of us have the experience of sort of waking up one morning and thinking oh is this is this really what i want Mm. you know and it's a question of direction and it's not that all of us want to kind of sell up and start a cupcake shop although there's (laughs) nothing wrong with that for for many of us it's it's a reorientation but it's a time when we really face quite existential questions of what do i really want where do i want to push in the rest of my career and life very stressful time for couples, particularly when two of us are doing this together. And this is actually a peak time for divorce. We see if we map the divorce statistics onto it. So this can be a really tumultuous transition. Basically,
1: it sounds like an existential crisis you're talking about here, Jennifer.
3: It is and I think we need to get away from the sense that an existential crisis is a bad thing. Mm. When we think of how we develop and we look at the research on human development, we do not develop from our comfort zone. We develop when we face these questions and they're very natural questions in our, roughly in our 40s because the path we take in our 20s and 30s, even if it's a good path, is, tends to be not quite our own. So imagine, I mean, think back to your twenties. You know, you're at college, you're at university, and there tends to be trendy industries to go into. And you think, oh well, why not? I'll apply for those. Or maybe you're from a family of doctors, like my my um, husband was, and you know you're sort of nudged into that direction. Or maybe, for example, my my children are growing up in France, and you know, smart kids become engineers, whether you want to or not. <laughs> and on the one hand, these social pressures. Um, push us on a path that's not quite our own, but they're not necessarily bad things. They're often from people who love us, who care about us. And and we can have a pretty good ride in our 20s and 30s. But usually when we come to our 40s, most of us are taking a step back and thinking, "Is is this really my life I'm living, right? Is this really my path? And again, it's not necessarily a huge transition and reorientation people make, although some people do. But it tends to be a time when we reevaluate. It's also a time, quite frankly, the first time in our lives that we're very aware that life is finite. And there's mm. a sense that, you know, not time is running out, but if I want to make a big transition, I want it to be now because I want a, a shot in this new direction. So there's also a sense of urgency around making the right decision and really going for something i really want to go for
1: and then the third third transition
3: yeah the third transition comes later in life when our social roles are changing so we're no longer the bright young thing accelerating up our career nor are we if we've had children that hands-on parent they're flying the nest so on the one hand, there's this sense of loss, you know, who am I if I'm not the hands-on parent, if I'm not the bright young thing, if I'm not the high potential. So it's a kind of identity transition. At the same time, it's a time of huge opportunity for the first time in maybe 20 years we have freedom you know the children have gone we've established our name we have a reputation and what are we going to do with that last stage of our career and this really reaches to those questions of legacy of um, you know broadening horizons past just career and relationship to think about volunteering, legacy, portfolio, careers, all these kind of things, which are really exciting developments on the career field.
1: Thank you so much for your time today, Jennifer. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to talk. Jennifer Petriglieri is a Professor of Organisational Behaviour at INSEAD Business School. She's the author of Couples That Work, How Dual Career Couples Can Not Just Survive But Thrive In Their Love And Work. I'm Lisa Leong. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. Until next week... Keep working.
0: In terms of thinking and planning, we entered the relationship pretty clear about our goals and aspirations, yeah, cool. and what it was that we are after. and And I, you know, recall and understand that Laura said to me, "You're not going to be a careerist who is away from the family and going interstate and travelling extensively and working back." And I said, "Well, that's okay because that's not really me." <laughs> um, The capacity
2: to think about it and talk about it reduces the resentment, doesn't it? Because you've actually made conscious decisions around, no, this is what we want. And and Scott's been very clear about my dreams for the last 20 years. He's been clear about that and supported me to get there and vice versa. But it has been thought about, most importantly, our relationship. Yeah, in a very close second, our kids. But most importantly, yeah, that we look after each other. guess advice I'd have uh, for young couples starting out on a career negotiation is really it's a matter of thinking about what you want for your life and what your partner wants for their life and trying to do those things not about what other people expect you to do well you stay home but I stayed home last time I missed my meeting well you missed it's not really about that there's a long road ahead there's amazing pathways off and if you love each other and you're willing to take a bit of a wild ride, it's gonna be so much more rewarding. Love each other, talk about things, sense of humour and play the long game.